Thank you so much. <clears throat> Appreciate that worship time and sharing time, prayer time. It's a blessing. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and today we want to talk about navigating a world of spin. The uh, Bible uh, tells us in all kinds of ways that we were created to glorify God, to honor God. And basically, that means living in such a way that we trust God and we love like God calls us to love. And so every passage of Scripture is ultimately uh, telling us something about God, about ourselves, about the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us, about the love of God for us in Christ, that we might trust God and that we might love in the way that he calls us uh, to love. And so let me read for us First uh, Corinthians chapter 2. This is one of those passages that, um, I don't know about you, but in my Bible reading through the year, there are some passages that seem immediately applicable, uh, pertinent to what I'm going through, and then some passages, often in Leviticus and other places, I wonder, you know, what, what the uh, uh, immediate application is. Well, this is one of those passages that initially we might think, well, this sounds like an issue between Paul and the Corinthians. I'm not sure it has a lot to do with me. But I hope we'll be able to see that it has a lot to do with us and a lot to do with what we're going through right now, even as a country. So let me begin in verse 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2. It says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of God. Uh, There was a Russian novelist, philosopher, um, political prisoner named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and uh, many of you probably have heard of him. He uh, passed away in 2008, but he uh, experienced the oppression that took place in the USSR, under communist Russia. Uh, During his days, he was sent to eight years in what would be a Russian concentration camp called the Gulag. Uh, He was exiled internally in Russia for a while before he was exiled uh, and came to America. But he was punished because he criticized Joseph Stalin in a private letter. Uh, which is why some people today have some concerns about people having access to our private communications. But he wrote a, an article just before he was exiled to the U.S. 
entitled, Live Not By Lies. So this is a a Russian. He was an Orthodox um, believer. Um, He's commenting on his experience in uh, communist Russia. And he writes this article. And he's talking about the fact that the thing that keeps the communist government in place and working is lies. And not only lies, but how people, how the masses are responding to the lies. And he argues that if people would simply stop participating in lies and live by the truth, speak by the truth, the communist government would fall. And so he says things like, um, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. One word of truth outweighs the world. He says, you can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. And so he was trying to encourage the Russian people under a communist government whose violence and whose oppression was fed by lies to not participate in the lies. One of the words we use today for lie is spin. Um, And we live in a world in which there's a lot of spin going on, a lot of lies being told. Uh, Webster defines spin in one sense, one kind of spin, as a special point of view, emphasis, or interpretation presented for the purpose of influencing opinion. So it's an interpretation, it's a perspective meant to try to get people to think a a certain way and do certain things. But it doesn't have anything necessarily to do with the truth. It's about influencing opinion. This is important to think about in light of where we are as a country and, and in light of what is our response to be to what's happening in our country. In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, it says, it talks about men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. And one of the things we have to realize is that, and this isn't something that's just unique to where we are today. This has always been the case to one degree or another. But in certain times, uh, it seems to be elevated and even more prevalent. And it's the idea of uh, creating reality through lies in order to get people to think a certain way and to live a certain way. There's a man named G.K. Chesterton who was an English writer, philosopher, late theologian, um, late 19th, early 20th century, who said this, and he spoke sort of prophetically in light of where we are today. He said, So far from it being self-evident to the modern mind that men are created equal, It is not self-evident that men are created or even that men are men. He said that back in 1926. Now, the immediate context was, he went on to say, uh, people look at men as if they were monkeys. So he was referring to the issue of evolution. But even that idea has evolved to something different than men being men. He also said, we shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four, in which furious party cries will be raised against anybody who says that cows have horns, in which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure, and hang a man for maddening a mob with the news that grass is green. So what he's saying is there will come a time when what is, has been commonly acknowledged among all people will no longer be considered true and people who speak the truth will be attacked for it. That is happening more and more in our world. Um, if you argue, argue that there are only two genders, male and female, you will be howled down. If you say that, a, that marriage is for a, a man and a woman, you'll be howled down. If you say that there's anything like natural immunity, if you say, my body, my decision, in terms of medical decisions, if you say there's something wrong with rioting and looting, if you say that it's a racist idea to say that all people 
all white people are white supremacists. You will be attacked. If you say that I'm, that you can't be simply whatever you feel you are, or you can't be anything you think you want to be, that there are some limitations on those kinds of things, you will be criticized, condemned, canceled in various ways. If you say that what you suffer can never be used to justify your sin, you will be howled down. Now, why do I bring all this up? I bring all this up to help us see the context in which Paul is talking to the Corinthians. Because one of the things that was going on in the Corinthian um, city as well as in the church is in the Greek culture, there was a high uh, value placed on what you could call sophistry. Sophistry, in in the most negative sense, is basically the idea of um, wise-sounding error. Or, as it's defined, sophistry could be defined as subtly deceptive reasoning or argumentation. Uh, So when Paul talks about wisdom in this chapter, and that's really the theme of the chapter is the issue of wisdom, he's talking about the fact that there's bad wisdom and there's good wisdom. There's God's wisdom and there's man's wisdom. And the wisdom that was prominent in Greek culture in Corinth in that day and time was the idea of man's wisdom and a kind of wisdom that argued for whatever it wanted to argue for, whether it was true or not. And you could uh, foster your own agenda by just being skilled at deceptive reasoning deceptive argumentation. In fact, um, uh, it kind of developed over the years, this kind of sophistry, so much so that Plato and others would say that there are certain kinds of uh, teachers who are sham philosophers out of uh, who say what they say for money and are willing to say anything to win an argument. Willing to say anything to win an argument. Indeed, um, some have defi- defined uh, the idea of this uh, sophistry as including what you might call the wise man or the expert. And we hear a lot about experts in our day. But it's often related to the idea of a false kind of reasoning that is used to deceive people. Um, someone was commenting on what was happening in, in Corinth and Uh, one of the statements that they made was rhetoricians or those who use rhetoric or uh, speaking to move um, people toward their agenda, rhetoricians uh, provided precisely the kind of profile and spin that we associate today with the mass media. They were more concerned for the effect that they were trying to get than for the truth. They were more concerned with winning than with truth. They wanted to win admiration. They wanted to win competitions. They wanted to uh, win approval. They wanted to reach their goals. Uh, Like someone said, they were like the mass media of today. They did not describe, they promoted. Their concern was not truth content. Someone else said, this kind of person was trained not to discover reality, but to manipulate it. Reality is what is accepted as reality, what is useful. So I say all that to say that there's a lot of that going on in our country today. There's a lot of argumentation that is a false kind of argumentation that is trying to pursue a certain agenda. And that's exactly what was happening in Paul's day. And that's why we see Paul starting off in verse 1 when he says, When I came to you, brethren... I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He doesn't mean he's not coming with God's wisdom. He means I'm not coming with the kind of uh, wisdom that you guys are familiar with. This kind of, um, I'm going to argue for whatever I want to argue for, whether what I'm arguing for is true and right and good or not but I'm going to wow you with my ability to convince you of whatever I want to convince you of. And he says, that's not the way I came. He came, he says, with a a supreme concern for truth. 
not just for winning the argument, not just for sounding good. And so in the first five verses, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so the first point I want to make is, Paul is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is our wisdom. He, right before this passage, he says, verses 30 and 31 of uh, 1 Corinthians 1, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So he says, I came to you, not preaching and teaching like the kind of wisdom you're used to. I came preaching Jesus, who is truly the wisdom of God. And the application for us is that we have to be careful that we're looking at what's happening in our own lives and in our country and in the world through the lens of truth, through the gospel of Jesus and through the word of God. Uh, when he says, I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God, you can link that to passages like 1 John chapter 5, where it says, uh, God has given testimony to his son that eternal life is found in Jesus. And he says that he wanted their faith to rest not on skilled argumentation, but on the power of God. And Romans chapter 1 says the gospel is the power of God. And so he preached the gospel because the gospel is the truth. He wants our faith to be rooted not in simply a slick presentation, but in the truth of what is really um, the case with regarding to God, with regarding God and us and Jesus. So what he's not saying is when he says, I came to you um, wanting to nothing among you except Jesus and Christ and him crucified. He's not saying that he was dumbing down his message to make it as simple as possible, that he was not working hard at presenting the truth. He's not saying that. And he's not talking about the fact that he only talked about what you can find in the four gospels, so to speak, right up to the crucifixion and didn't talk about the resurrection. So if he says, I came to you talking about Jesus and the crucifixion, he didn't leave out the resurrection because in 1 Corinthians 15, he argues that, don't you remember, I told you that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you read Acts chapter 18, which is an account of what happened when he was in um, Corinth, it says he taught the word of God. And so when he says uh, that he uh, knew nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified, he was basically saying uh, in summary fashion that he preached Jesus and all that Jesus is and all that Jesus means, which means he preached the word of God because Jesus could say in Luke 24 that all the scriptures point to me. All the scriptures are, are uh, pointing to me who I am and what I'm going to do. So Paul isn't saying, I, I, I just gave you a track with four points. Don't you remember? No, what he's saying is, I did not get into trying to convince you of anything apart from simply telling you the truth as clearly as I could and as helpfully as I could. I wanted you to know the truth about God, about yourself, and about Jesus. Um, I mentioned before that uh, there was an interesting thing that happened even in our, in our church at one point where uh, Jan and I found out later on after many, many years that there was a, a, a phrase that was used at Coast for a while, um, just Jesus. And someone uh, who attended Coast during that time walked away from that thinking that there was no trinity. There was just Jesus. And so I bring that up to simply say, if we read what Paul is saying there, I didn't tell you anything but Jesus and him crucified and we oversimplify it, we may leave out a lot of things that Paul never intended to be left out. Just like those who were using that phrase back at Coast years ago did not intend to imply that there was no Father and no Holy Spirit. 
And so sometimes we read these things and we don't realize that Paul is summarizing the gospel. He's summarizing what's so important for us to know and believe. We don't want to be like uh, Thomas Jefferson. You've probably heard of the Jefferson Bible. They call it that, where he took the New Testament, basically, uh, I think it was just the four gospels, and he cut out everything that had any reference to Jesus being God or any reference to anything being supernatural, and he cut it all down to just a moral code, so to speak, about how Jesus told us to live. And so what Paul is doing here is he's not cutting out things like the resurrection, and he's not cutting out the Old Testament, which in our day and time people have started talking about unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament. Paul has nothing like that in view. Basically what he's saying is, I told you the truth that can be found in the Bible. And at the heart of what the Bible is about is Jesus and what he did for us, especially his death on the cross for us. And so we don't want a deleted Jesus. We don't want to cut out Jesus. We want the whole Jesus. And that's one reason why uh, we need to encourage each other to read your whole Bible and think about what it says and put it together like the ladies this weekend were encouraged to look at the themes in the Bible. Know what your Bible says because it, it all relates to Jesus. And it's all about him and what he's done for us and what he will do for us. And so there's nothing more important for us, Paul is saying, than understanding who Jesus is and what he did. There's nothing in life that's more important than that. C.S. Lewis could say, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's what Paul is saying. I don't see anything in life except by looking at it through the lens of Jesus and him crucified. That's how I see life. That's how I understand what's happening in my world. That's how I know how to respond to what's happening into my, in my world. I understand the revelation of God in Jesus and what he did for us and what that means. In Jeremiah 9, it says that him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. In our day and time, we have so much access to information. And we might feel like we need to know everything that there is to know. Well, the Bible says, uh, make sure that you know Jesus, if nothing else. Make sure that you know God, if nothing else. If you don't even know what the latest post was on Facebook or on Instagram, make sure you know Jesus and him crucified. And you understand what that means for you today. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 3, more than that, I count all things to be lost and view the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So that's the burden of what he's talking about here. Uh, The Corinthians were in a world filled with all kinds of rhetoric, all kinds of argumentation, all kinds of encouragement to have your best life now in various ways by applying worldly wisdom. And Paul is saying the most important thing you can know is the revelation of God in the person of Jesus and what he's done for you and what he promises to you. So that's what he's arguing for, and that's what he says he emphasized when he was among them for a year and a half. The second thing I want us to see is that this wisdom that he's talking about, there is a wisdom that he preached and he taught, but it wasn't the wisdom of man, it was the wisdom of God. And yet we have to understand that we live in a world that doesn't understand that. And we live under rulers who don't understand the wisdom of God. That's why in verse 6 it says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So in the first five verses, he says, I didn't come to you preaching the world's wisdom. But he says here, I did come to you speaking God's wisdom. And God's wisdom isn't something that uh, the world understands. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised if the rulers of this world don't live and talk and believe and act in light of the wisdom of God that's found in Jesus. What he says is, though, that that wisdom that is found in God is a wisdom that helps us see how we have been prepared for something. We've been prepared for what you might call a hidden treasure. The wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus, which promises us uh, eternal life and promises us a kingdom to come full of righteousness, joy, and peace, is something that's like a hidden treasure that only certain people see. And it's kind of like the story in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha and his servant are being surrounded by this army. And the servant is panicking, saying, we're in trouble. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes to see that there are more on our side than there are on their side. And God opens the servant's eyes and he sees uh, chariots and an army, spiritual army, spiritual chariots all around them, angels that are ready to protect Elisha, even though men are ready to attack And so what Paul is saying here is kind of like that, that most people could only see the physical, the army of men and the rulers that exist. But those whose eyes have been opened realize that there's another king. His name is Jesus. He is the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies, his own army, and that he surrounds his people and he will take care of us no matter what the world might do. And so Paul here in this part of the passage isn't saying that there's no wisdom in the Bible. He's not saying that he uh, expects everybody to understand the message that he's preaching. But what he's saying is that the wisdom of God about why he created us, what happened to the world and why it's in the situation it's in, what God has done about, about it through his son and what he promised, promises to all those who trust his son is a wisdom that is meant to fortify us no matter what happens. But it's not something that everybody sees. Um, it's interesting that, um, again, Thomas Jefferson uh, talked about going through the Gospels and pulling out what he called the most sublime and benevolent code of morals that have ever been offered to man. And he said as he worked through that, that he said those um, codes of what to do or what not to do were easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. Now think about what he's saying. He says all that stuff about Jesus being God, that's dung. All that stuff about uh, those miracles that they say happened, that's dung. All of that stuff about salvation through somebody else laying down their life for us, dung. That's why Paul could say, um, it is foolish, as he says in this passage, it is foolish to the natural man that God would actually save someone by grace. That Jesus himself could actually be God in the flesh. Just total foolishness. Someone has said, Jefferson's is a hard gospel. The blind do not see, the lame do not walk, the multitudes will remain hungry if loaves and fishes must be multiplied to feed them. Even those who look to Jesus for forgiveness of sins are left wanting. If you read his version of the Bible, basically, naturally, we believe people get what they deserve. That's why if you look at a rich man or you ask a rich man, he will naturally say, I earned this. I worked hard. But you look at a poor man and say, wow, I wonder what he did to deserve that. Or... um, you know, if, if you have certain kind of blessings, it's very natural to think, well, it must be because I've somehow done something good. And if I go through a difficult time, it's naturally to think, 
well, I must have deserved this, so to speak. We base everything on what people deserve. The gospel is grace. It's not based on what we deserve. It's based on what we don't deserve. And nobody naturally thinks that God gives them anything based on grace. That's why we don't naturally thank God for things. Because we think somehow we deserve what we receive. It's only when we have our eyes open and we realize that we're sinners and we deserve to be destroyed that we begin thanking God, truly thanking God, not just verbally, but from our hearts, truly thanking God. It's not until we see that we deserve to be destroyed that we begin looking for a Savior and we begin to entrust ourselves to Christ. And so Paul could say that is the key to life. It's understanding God's wisdom in terms of what is really true of us and what we truly need. But this doesn't happen automatically. It's by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we call it not only hidden wisdom, but spirit-taught wisdom. He says in verse 10, For to us God revealed them, meaning the things that are hidden, things that God has prepared for those who love them. They're not still hidden. They're proclaimed in the gospel. God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words." In Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. It's not until God tells us uh, what his thoughts are and reveals them to us that we begin to see things from God's perspective. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes to see what is true of us and what he's done for us. And he wants us to see that we need to in a sense, pray for the Holy Spirit. It's like Martin Luther said, um, you need to kneel down in your private little room and with sincere humility and earnestness, pray God through his dear son graciously to grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding so that when you read your Bible, you say, God, help me understand this because I don't naturally understand what's in front of me. I naturally don't see grace. I see law. I don't see your goodness. I see your harshness. Open my eyes to see what is true in your word. And he talks about the fact that what the Holy Spirit has done in giving us the Bible is he's, in a sense, told us how to think about what is true. He's combined spiritual thoughts with spiritual uh, words. Um, one of the things that's happening in our culture is everything's being redefined. Male and female is being redefined. Marriage is being redefined. Reality is being redefined. And there are new kinds of categories being created. The question always is whether or not those categories are biblical categories. Does God have a category for um, someone who's been sinned against, who has the right to sin against someone else. Is that a biblical category? Or is that, is that man's wisdom? It says, you did this to me whether yesterday or 200 years ago, therefore I can do this to you. Is that a biblical category? No, that's worldly wisdom. And so what we have in the Bible is um, things that help us to see that there's so much that's being said today that is just worldly wisdom. Just Highlighting that one thing I just mentioned, there's a proverb, Proverbs 6, 30 and 31 says this. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Now think about that. In our day and time, people would say, if you require anyone to pay a penalty for doing something wrong, if they've been abused, then you're mistreating them. If you don't 
show compassion to them and let them off the hook. If you don't identify with their need, if they do something because they've either been mistreated or they're in a difficult situation, if you don't excuse what they do, you're mistreating them. That verse says, men do not despise a thief if he steals, which means I can understand it if someone is in a position where they don't have any money, they don't have any food, and the temptation is great to steal. But it goes on to say, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He's not let off the hook because he's hungry. It's still wrong to steal. There still should be a consequence for it. And so we've got to the point where compassion means I let people do whatever they want to do. That is a false category. That is a false definition of compassion. So that's what I'm saying is there's worldly wisdom that's being fed to us all the time, justifying sin. The only thing you do by justifying sin is cut people off from the Savior they need. Because if they don't see their sin, they don't have a need for a Savior. So what we have in the Bible, Paul is arguing, is exactly what we need. We have God's categories for truth. We have God's categories for right and wrong. And it's all meant to help us see our need for Jesus and to point us to him. The fourth thing is, in verses 14 through 16, last point, and this is what Paul is ultimately saying, is that what we have in the gospel, what we have in the Bible, is the mind of Christ. So that if we want to know what God thinks, we need to open our Bible. Verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Uh, He said that the only way you know what a person is thinking is if they tell you, right? I don't know what Dan's thinking right now. You don't know exactly what I'm thinking right now until I tell you. And Paul is saying the only way we know what God thinks is if he tells us. And how and when has he told us? In the Bible. That's the mind of Christ. That's the mind of God. That's how we know what God thinks, what Christ thinks. And so if we want to know what God thinks about what we're doing or not doing, uh, what's happening in our country or not, we need to open our Bibles. Uh, That's why Martin Luther could say, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. That's how we find out what God thinks about what is going on. I mentioned earlier that um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, got caught in a private letter criticizing Stalin. Well, just this week or so, a coach of the Las Vegas Raiders got caught saying some inappropriate things in a private series of emails, John Gruden. And he's since had to resign from his position and has been, quote, canceled. I want want us to think a little bit about that. Um, John Gruden's inner thoughts, which he would have never said publicly, were revealed in those emails, his private thoughts. And this is what someone said about that. They talk about um, how this has larger implications for uh, free speech rights, um, has larger implications for living in a free society. But he said this, Gruden observed all the public expectations of sanitized corporate speech and is being canceled for what's essentially thought crime. So he shared his thoughts and he was convicted and condemned for thought crime. Now, if anybody knows about what happened there, I am in no way justifying what he had to say or what his thoughts were. And at best, they were sinfully communicated. I want to make the analogy, though, that God's private thoughts are found right here. If you want to know what God thinks, it's right here. And the world that is just as quick to condemn someone like John Gruden is even quicker to condemn God with regard to his thoughts. What he says is right and wise and good. It will be the same for us as Christians. In fact, uh, just this week I read an email from Jay Sekulow, who's a Christian lawyer. 
He talked about a Christian realtor who on her website had John 3.16. At the bottom of her email, she would put Jesus loves you and she's been essentially fired. What is that? That's a thought crime. You think this, therefore you cannot do what you're doing anymore. And so the whole issue with John Gruden is not the issue of what he said or what he thought. We can take, we can apply that to the word and say whether that was right or wrong or not. The issue is uh, we live in a society where crimes of thought are being persecuted or prosecuted in various ways. And we just need to understand that that's what's going to happen more and more apart from the grace of God. And we need to pray, God, grant me grace to suffer for what is right. Grant me grace to suffer for the truth because it's very likely that all of us, to one degree or another, in one way or another, are going to have to make a choice between uh, living by lies or living by the truth, which is what Solzhenitsyn was talking about. Well, let me just kind of wrap this up in terms of application, um, in terms of lens of truth versus a lens of propaganda. What Paul was arguing here to the Corinthians was, uh, you're getting propaganda through these um, sophists, these these performance-oriented speakers who come through and they're trying to argue for whatever they need to argue for to win your approval, to further their careers, to achieve their goals. They have no concern for the truth. And you need to understand that the most important thing in life is the truth. You need to know and live according to the truth, not according to lies. Um, Why is there censorship in communist countries? Why are we seeing the growth of censorship on Facebook and other places? Because they want there to be one narrative. They want there to be one message, and they want that message to shape what you think and what you do, because propaganda you could uh, define broadly um, as any communication that creates a false reality through carefully crafted lies with a particular goal in mind. Okay, so they want you to see life and reality in a certain way. They use lies to shape that reality because they have a certain goal that they're, they're trying to achieve. Um, They may use outright falsehoods, but more than likely they're going to use half-truths and they're going to use facts that they can interpret in such a way that it will um, foster their agenda. Um, It's interesting, Adolf Hitler said, uh, the function of propaganda is not to make an objective study of the truth and then set it before the masses with academic fairness. Its task is to serve our own right always and unflinchingly. Hear what he's saying? He's saying, what we communicate as a government, and they had their own uh, minister of prop- propaganda, basically, what we communicate as a government is not the truth so that our people can understand what the truth is and make good and wise decisions based on the truth. That's not our goal. Our goal is to tell them what will further our agenda. Now, This has always been done to one degree or another in all governments because all governments are fallen. And apart from God's grace, we all try to further our own agenda in in inappropriate ways. But we can see this happening in so many different ways. We've seen it in other governments and it seems to be happening in our own country more and more. That's why Jesus could say things like, take care how you listen and take care what you listen to. That is a responsibility for us as believers to take care care how we listen and what we listen to. And why is that? You can't trust God as you should and believe lies. Okay? If, if, If it is true that we should say what we need to do in our day and time is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love God, to love the body of Christ, To love, that's what the Bible calls us to. That is so very true. But we have to understand that that requires that we believe the truth. Um, Living our life 
based on lies doesn't fulfill uh, trusting God as we should. That's why Jesus could say, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You're truly following me. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So a lie binds you. Just like Jane and I were talking this morning, she reminded me of the illustration I've used before about the baby elephant, that uh, its leg is tied by a rope to a stake, and that baby elephant will pull as long as it can, as hard as it can, until it figures out it can't move, it can't get away, it can't get loose. And then that elephant grows to be a huge animal, and they still keep it bound by that little rope. Why? Because in its mind, it does not believe that it can get away. It's bound by a lie. And so the truth is crucial to us being set free. And in the context of what Jesus says in John 8, being set free not to sin, being set free to trust God, being set free to love people. The truth is crucial. And so if we can't trust God as we should, if we believe lies, we can't love others as we should if we believe lies. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Rejoices with the truth. In order to love people, we have to be people that are concerned with the truth, both the truth in terms of what the Bible says and the truth in terms of what is actually being communicated uh, from one to another. Um, again, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, after many, many years of studying what happened in Russia, uh, said that when he was a child, he heard old, older people in Russia offering an explanation for why things played out the way they did in Russia. And they said, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. He said, after all the years of research I've done, all the writing I've done, all the interviews I've had, I cannot improve on that assessment of why things have played out the way they have in our country. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. To forget God is to forget the truth and to live by lies. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, don't live by lies. You can't be set free from sin through lies can't be set free to trust God through lies. You can't be set free to love people through lies. That's why it's so crucial for us to be people of the truth. The truth of the word of God, most importantly, but also in just trying to understand what's going on in our country and in our lives, to be people of the truth. And so my encouragement as we wrap up today is just that we would pray that God would help us, give us eyes to see everything through the lens of Scripture, to evaluate everything in light of what the Bible says, and to realize that men are prone not to tell the truth for their own selfish advancement. Now, is that always the case? No, because there is such a thing called common grace. And because of common grace... Even unbelievers can speak the truth. Even unbelievers can pursue what is good and wise. So we're not saying that you distrust everyone or that you distrust every unbeliever or that you distrust every ruler or politician. But it means that you evaluate everything. You appraise. Isn't that what Paul says here? That we are to appraise all things. We're to evaluate all things. And we're to be aware of the fact that it is the propensity of natural man to act in such a way that they craft a reality that isn't true. Why? Because they don't see what's true. They don't see the reality of who God is, who Jesus is, and what he's up to. They don't embrace the reality that we find in the Bible. And so, therefore, they're not going to be pursuing things as we would. And so, as we pray for our leaders, which I'm so glad we did this morning, as Mark led us to, we need to pray that they would lead us in that which is right and wise and good. But we also need to pray, help us, Lord, to listen carefully, to listen well, and to know when that's not happening, and to know the difference between truth and lies. 
because people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn said there are two problems. Um, People were not um, aware of the lies or they were just too content with living under lies because they knew that if they challenged the lies, they might lose their job, they might lose their food, they might lose their home, they might lose their lives. And he would say, better to lose all that than to lose the truth. And the only way that the truth will prevail is as we hold on to the truth and we live our lives in light of the truth, whatever it is, and not in the light of lies. And that's why Jesus could say, follow me by knowing and believing the truth. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see how what Paul says in this chapter in a way that encourages us in our own day and time. There are a lot of things going on in Corinth that we may or may not be able to relate to, but we can certainly understand the reality of people with an agenda um, creating a reality through crafted lies for their own agendas to be successful. Help us to see that we all have that propensity naturally apart from grace, whether common grace or saving grace. Help us have compassion on our rulers and on others who don't know you and to pray for them and to pray that they would see your wisdom in the gospel. And we pray that you'd help us to stand for truth. Stand for the truth of your word. Stand for the truth of what is really going on around us. And help us to be willing in whatever way we have to, uh, as Mark mentioned, to draw proper lines and boundaries and to take proper stands wherever they might be and to trust you, to be courageous where we need to be courageous, whatever that means. And we pray, Lord, that your truth would prevail, the truth of the gospel and the truth of what is happening in our world. May it truly prevail for the glory of your name and for the accomplishment of your purposes and the growth of your kingdom. Father, please just uh, prepare our hearts now for the celebration of the Lord's Supper and all that it means. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.